Support for Under the Radar comes from Wellwithall. Wellwithall believes that self-care is community care. Premium products crafted for your daily wellness, from sleep support to heart health to your daily regimen. 20% of Wellwithall's profits are committed to leading the fight for health equity. They won't stop until it is truly Wellwithall. I'm Callie Crossley, and this is Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. And now for the part of the show we call Lanya. That's Creole for something extra. All the day long, whether rain or shine, she's a part of the assembly line. She's making history, working for victory. Rosie, the riveter. That's the 1942 song called Rosie the Riveter, honoring the symbol of the women who, during World War II, left the kitchen for factories and shipyards, like our own Charlestown Navy Yard. Next month, our local branch of the National Park Service will honor these so-called swans, the shipbuilding women of the Navy, in a weekend-long celebration at the Charlestown Navy Yard. The event is called Rosie's Invade the Yard. Here to tell us more about the event, Maria Cole, Supervisory Park Ranger for the Boston National Historical Park, a 43-acre park that includes historic landmarks like Bunker Hill, Faneuil Hall, and the Charlestown Navy Yard. Hello, Maria. Hello. Also with me, Jocelyn Gould, Park Ranger in the Division of Interpretation and Education at the Boston National Historical Park. Welcome, Jocelyn. Hello. So glad to have both of you, and this is just such a fun and exciting event, and kudos to both of you for being a part of the group that thought this up. Last year was the first time in celebration of the 100th anniversary of the National Park Service nationwide, yes. and this is the second event. So, Maria, how did you happen to come to think about, hey, we at the Charlestown Navy Yard got a lot of the Rosie the Riveter history. Well, 20 years ago, we used to do an education program about Rosie the Riveter, and that's kind of when we started the research and development into the story. And then when we lost an education specialist a few years back, that all kind of folded and went to sleep. And Jocelyn here deserves full credit for saying, hey, let's bring her back. And instead of doing it as an education program where we have just a classroom at a time, let's blow it up into a great big party. So I give 100% credit to Jocelyn on this. Okay. Well, Jocelyn, Jocelyn, I'm going to give you the credit and let let you pick up. Um, 8,000 women worked at the Boston Navy shipyard during World War II. There were electricians, welders. That was of the nearly 19 million women who held jobs during World War II. So who were the women who worked here in our area that you know of and what you know about them? So we found about 800 names and They are from all over the basic eastern part of Massachusetts. We have some from Lowell, Andover, and Lawrence that were coming down. We have some from New Bedford and Fall River, some from the Worcester area as well. But many of them are from the Charlestown Navy Yard neighborhood, and many of those families are still there to this day. They were all different ages. We found some teenagers who were coming into the workforce for like the first young? time. About 18, 19. Wow. okay. And we found um, some of our elder ladies as well, grandmothers who were coming out and working as well. Many of them, though, are going to be around the age of 25 to 30. Um, they are often coming into the workforce at this time because they are feeling patriotic, but especially because they have brothers and 
fathers and husbands who are serving. And they decide that they wanted to help fill in those gaps and try and help them on the home front so that they could contribute to their safety and their effort on the uh, war fronts as well. That's my guest, Jocelyn Gould. She's a park ranger in the Division of Interpretation and Education at the Boston National Historical Park. One of the things I learned in preparation for this conversation is that you don't tend to think of Rosie the Riveter, even though it's so obvious, as a propaganda campaign to get those women in. So let's listen to some of the newsreels that were out and about during that time to really encourage women, call out really for them to join the workforce in order to win the war. It takes human power to keep war factories going, and much of our manpower is going to war. More and more men are being called into the armed forces. Their jobs must be filled, and filled now. And who can fill them? You, you women. You are the ones who must fill them, who can give our boys what they need. If you need training, you can get it, and it's free. We must win this war, but we can't win this war unless you women take over the jobs that men are leaving, and you're needed right now. That's pretty powerful, wouldn't you say, Maria? (laughs) It is. It absolutely is. And as Jocelyn was saying, a lot of these women were motivated by patriotism, and a lot of the propaganda, as you pointed out, used patriotism as a main motivator. Of course, there was an entire segment of women that didn't need motivation. They were in the working forces already, and what they really needed was just an opportunity to get a better paying job. And when factories and shipyards and airplane and tanks were being made, there were a higher segment of working class women who jumped at the opportunity to leave their jobs in service, to leave their jobs in laundromats, to leave their jobs in shops and go for the better paying war work, even though it was physically more demanding. Now, I know that you guys really tried hard to find women who worked in the shipyard during that time and had some success, Jocelyn, with last year you had a woman who actually worked in the Navy Yards, right? Yeah, her name is Margaret, quote-unquote, Peggy Marigo, and she was the first qualified female welder to enter into the workforce at the Navy Yard. We found her through some really hard Google searching and following up on leads and chasing things down, and she's now living up in Vermont and came down for the event, and she was just shocked that her picture was everywhere. And we had some of her quotes, and she had her own little groupie fan club of (laughs) park rangers who were kind of giving her hugs and saying how much they were interested in her story, and she was just floored by it. But she's a really, really awesome woman. And she enjoyed the work? She did. She um, said in her oral history that I found that even 30 years later, she would be walking by something that had welding on it, and she'd turn it over, and she'd judge the welding job that that person had done because she always wanted her work to be A-plus, she said. <laughs> she never wanted any soldier or sailor or anybody get hurt because she didn't do her job properly. How old was she when she came last year? She's 95, mm. and she made the very long trek down, but it was a really cool event to have her at. Well, we got some voices of real women like her from a documentary that was made in 1980 called The Life and Times of Rosie the Riveter. So here is Gladys Belcher of Richmond, California, describing her job and how much she liked it. I have worked from the double bottoms clear up to the crow's nest. There's only about three feet you have to set down in there to work in the double bottoms, and you can't work in there very long because it gets pretty well filled up with smoke, and then you have to get out. 
welded on the deck, the big slabs of uh, iron that lay on the deck, welded those together. Welding on the deck is really fun. I enjoyed every bit of it. So what I thought was interesting looking at the documentary and listening to those women is, is you and you've described Peggy, who was here and worked in the Charlestown Navy Yard and enjoyed the work. This woman just said she enjoyed it very much. That's Gladys Belcher from the documentary film The Life and Times of Rosie the Riveter. While the women came in, it wasn't so easy just to walk in, Maria, and take over, even though they were calling for women to take over these jobs. Absolutely. You know, Places where we build ships tend to be very male-dominating environments, and there's a certain amount of machismo that is attached to this type of work. It requires a lot of strength and a lot of skill. And if a woman can do it, then what does that say about the men who have hinged their masculinity on their work? Suddenly, 18-year-old Peggy is doing the same job they do. One of the things that happened in the Boston Navy Yard was to break down the work. So it was a little bit more like assembly line work. And so maybe you were doing the same thing over and over and over again, and then you handed your piece off to, to somebody else. And, uh, and that was one of the ways that they worked with so many brand new people who were new to these skills. It was a way of making it a little bit easier. And then that in itself ended up causing some issues with a lot of the skilled workers who had gone through the entire apprenticeship journeyman procedure, and now this woman who's only got three months training is doing the same job I am. So there was definitely some tension. It does sound like a lot of the older men who were called back to work, so the first workers to actually go into the Navy Yard once we started the war, were older men who had lost their jobs, and they were called back in. And they actually seemed to be a little bit more welcoming to these young women and kind of took them under their wings and, here, let me show you how to do this. And there was definitely some tension. You know, Peggy's got a story of uh, hearing some guys behind her looking at her work and inspecting her work, and she's kind of listening in, and she hears one of them say to the other, you know, she's going to put us out of a job. Wow. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. So, So there was definitely some tension there. Yeah, and there was also issues of trust as well. When Peggy came in, they actually... Strip searched her every day, coming in and out. What? Yeah, they they made her go behind a screen with a nurse, take off her clothes, and they would uh, search her with magnets to see if she was smuggling anything in or out. They would check her sandwiches. What would she be smuggling? Plans, materials. Oh, as if she were a spy or something. Yeah. Oh, I see. Okay. Exactly. All right. Yeah. Okay. And uh-huh. uh, she said that went on for about two weeks, and she had a bodyguard as well. But bringing in the women improved some things as well. They made an order that you weren't allowed to swear or spit anymore, and they put doors on the bathrooms. Well, yeah, hey, <laughs> that would be nice. Um, what, what was the percentage, if you were able to know, of women versus men working at the Charlestown Navy Yard? So there are 50,000 approximately workers at the height of World War II. Of those, about 8,000 were women. I'm not a mathematician, but that is not a lot yeah. uh, when you look at the large number of workers. But the Boston Navy Yard was one of the larger Navy Yards that employed people during World War II because it was used for not only shipbuilding but also repair. Mm-hmm. And since it was on a good latitude with England, you have a lot of ships coming over 
to get services done while they were doing the transatlantic convoys. I'm Callie Crossley, and you're listening to Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. I'm here with Maria Cole and Jocelyn Gould. You just heard her, park rangers at the Boston National Historical Park and at the Charlestown Navy Yard, where the event Rosie's Invade the Yard will take place on Saturday, August the 12th, and Sunday, August the 13th. We're in celebration of Rosie the Riveter, the symbol, and all of the women, the 8,000 at the Charlestown Navy Yard, and the nearly 19 million who held jobs during World War II in the factories and shipyards, doing all the work that men had done, some of them looking at their work and wondering how they did it. So here's the other thing that I learned in preparation for this discussion. You know, you forget that everybody was coming out of the Depression, so nobody had any money. So at an opportunity to make salaries, like really good salaries for men or women, for their families, was huge, Maria. Absolutely. We see um, the home income just skyrocket during World War II as these economic opportunities open up to people. And you're absolutely right that there were a lot of feelings during the Great Depression that only the head of household should be a breadwinner. And as a result, married women were often refused jobs during the Great Depression, even if their husband didn't have a job, because in theory, if there is a job, it should go to the head of household. And so it was a huge change, 180, to suddenly say, okay, now everyone in the country needs to go to work. Whether you're old, if you're a teenager, you can work on the weekends and after school. It was just a a huge flood of change. And one of the things the government did to try to not make inflation go crazy as a result was to really encourage people to take a portion of their pay in the form of war bonds. Mm. And so there were a lot of... So it's a double support for the war. Exactly. Mm -hmm. And so there were a lot of people who were investing in war bonds And Jocelyn has a really good story of a woman who used her war bonds to really change her life after the war was over. Let me remind my guests that you're Maria Cole, Supervisory Park Ranger for the Boston National Historical Park. Go ahead, Jocelyn. So in our searching to find these women and their names, we actually have a really great resource called the Shipyard News, which is the in-yard newspaper. And it's really a raw, raw look at how awesome our employees are. So it has things about the bowling team and the boxing matches that are going on. And to get these war bond drives going, they would have a lot of people do performances. So people like James Cagney would come and perform Mm. and encourage people to buy war bonds. Other people, one man did a flip every day at lunchtime. And he did it for about 30 days straight. And apparently people were buying bonds kind of like jump rope for heart kind of thing Mm -hmm. in support of that. And they had competitions between the Boston and Portsmouth Navy Yards in the 1940s to try and encourage people to do this. So Mildred Isaacs, who was an African-American woman working in the Navy Yard, was featured in 1944. And she had been working in the yard for two years. So she started in 1942. And she was one of the people who was kind of bandied about as this great example of an employee because she was buying all these war bonds and she had a really great reason to do so. She was already a college graduate from Boston College and she was going to use the money, she told them, to pay for her graduate studies Mm. at Boston College. And she got a master's of social work. We later found her as an employee of the city of Boston. Wow. So she was able to really parlay this into, you know, a step up and out 
of the only working at home or not even having a job and being able to go out and continue working with the public. Now, Maria had mentioned earlier that some of the people working in the factories were people already working. You just hit on a point I wanted to make, which is that there was such as it was. I mean, we're still talking about diversity today. Diversity in a way that might not be expected in a number of these factories and at the shipyard. You found three Chinese-American women, Jocelyn, as well, who worked in the shipyard. The first one that we hit upon was a woman named Alice Yick. She was the first Chinese-American baby born in Portsmouth, New Hampshire, and that made the front page of the newspaper. (laughs) And then her family came down. They settled in Chinatown here in Boston and had a restaurant there. And she was the first Chinese-American employee at the Navy Yard. Unfortunately, Alice and I share a very common issue. She was also short and couldn't really reach a lot of the levers and the the foot pedals and everything. So while she didn't stay in the Navy Yard very long, she stayed with war work and went to the Gillette plant, which Ah. had been changed from personal hygiene to uh, doing war work for the military. We also found a woman named Pauline Chen, who was featured for also participating in these war bond drives. They said that her Christmas tree was decorated with war bonds that she bought for her relatives as Christmas presents. And then there was also Minnie Wong, who was uh, nicknamed the Fenway Farmerette. Wow. (laughs) Uh, And she was held up as an example of awesomeness for having the biggest and best corn out of her victory garden. And she had a plot at the Fenway Victory Garden, which is the oldest one in the United States and still is used today. Well, when this campaign got going and a lot of these women were now working, despite the, some of the tension with the men and doing some of the activities that you've just described, it was really interesting to me to hear the variety of jobs that they were doing. I, we found this newsreel that explains how women were encouraged to join the wartime effort, but it also described the various jobs that women acquired during the war. Here is the office of the supervisor of women employees. Are they doing all right? beyond anything anyone ever dreamed of. They're doing something in almost every department in the plant. And I don't mean just clerks and checkers. We have women engineers and oilers in the boiler room. Women repair experts. Women work at the ore mines above ground, along the unloading docks, and our private railroad tracks. And women shipbuilders. There you go, women shipbuilders. Maria, you know, you've been talking about how a lot of this history just has never been unearthed, and you think you know why. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, why has it not been unearthed? Well, I would say it continues to be unearthed. I think that's a better way to say it. One of the reasons why I think is part of it is it's a 20th century history, and a lot of people don't want to recognize it as history yet. But now, 75 years later, we're losing. We have lost a lot of the people who who have lived through this. And now the people who are left were very young children and teenagers and maybe in their 20s. And then another reason is because it's about women. Women seldom make the textbooks. Well-behaved women don't make history, right? That's right. Laurel Ulrich at Harvard. Give her credit for coming up with that. Go ahead. You know, a woman's woman's name was only supposed to appear in the newspaper on three occasions, her birth, her marriage, and her death, right? And a lot of these women haven't been in the newspapers. They're in the shipyard news. 
But even so, you know, we've managed to name about 800 of them, which is only 10% of them. And that has taken a lot of effort and a lot of research and a lot of piling through not just the Shipyard News, but the Boston Globe and the Guardian and kind of piecing it all together. And Jocelyn and Polly have done a really fantastic job doing that sort of thing. I bet you a lot of the, maybe some of the families that you contacted, they didn't even know that their relatives had been a part of this World War II effort. Absolutely. And a lot and a lot of people don't talk about their World War II experiences. So just recently, one of my brand new seasonal rangers went out for a tour of our ship, USS Cass and Young. And it was just as a training tour. And she went out with one of our more experienced rangers. And she comes back in and she goes, I have to call my grandpa. (laughs) And it's like, yes, you do need to call your grandpa. And so even within our own families, we don't necessarily, you know, know the stories. I mean, I know my grandpa worked for GE and I know he went around from plant to plant to plant fixing the GE equipment in each of the plants. And in order to do that, he had two gas ration stickers. But what he actually did, I don't know, Mm. you know. And so we definitely see people, you know, just not bothering to ask their parents and their grandparents and their great aunts and uncles. So what did you do? Well, Maria, and both of you can answer this. What happened to a lot of these women? Did that, You know, I understand the tension in the shipyard and in the factories, at least at the beginning. But now these women have skills. You mentioned the, Jocelyn, you mentioned the woman who left there who was too short for the Navy Yard but went on to Gillette. Do we have any sense of what percentage of women went on to do similar kinds of work or at least stay in the workforce or those who just returned home and didn't talk about it until now. (laughs) One of the quotes that we have is that the men came home and we had a new job to do, which was making babies. Mm. A lot of these women, they're getting married in 44, 45, when you start to see the you know, victory over Europe start and then, you know, it becomes evident that Japan is not going to be holding on for much longer and people start making plans for the future. Uh, and a lot of the women said that they were happy to give these jobs back to these veterans, these men who had them before and who, through their service, deserved those jobs. But it meant that they had to go someplace else. And most of these women will go back into the homes. But many of them, are going to go and they're going to get college degrees like Mildred. They're going to start working as secretaries. They're they're the ones who start to kind of tap at that glass ceiling that's in civilian life. And they'll start tapping at it and making cracks in it so that eventually their children are the ones who will really benefit from their efforts and be able to come into the workforce as equals more so. I'd also like to point out it wasn't just women who lost those these war jobs. Mm. So we talk about, you know, Boston Naval Shipyard having 50,000 employees. Well, by 1950, there were not 50,000 employees working in the shipyards and repairing ships. And then for all of those uh, workers who were in factories like Gillette that had retooled for wartime, the immediate reaction was to shut down the factory entirely and then retool for for peacetime production. And when they hired back, the factory itself had gone through a whole series of of automation, and so there just weren't as many positions in peacetime as there were during wartime. 
and Rosie the Riveter and all of her um, real-life women were uh, uh, so much a part of all of that history and, and continue to be. And I thank you both for bringing it to light for all of us. And I just have a note about the park ranger service in general. This is just my personal note. I have learned so much on tours led by park service rangers. I just can't say enough about how much you learn on all of the the historic sites here in Boston. So people should really take advantage of it. So I'm very delighted to uh, bring some uh, light to, to this. Thank oh, you so much. I'm wonderful. Learned so much. So thank you both for joining me today. Thank you. Thank you for having us. Maria Cole is a supervisory park ranger for the Boston National Historical Park, and Jocelyn Gould is a park ranger in the Division of Interpretation and Education at Boston National Historical Park. Rosie's Invade the Yard takes place on Saturday, August 12th, and Sunday, August 13th at the Charlestown Navy Yard. The event is free and open to the public, and there's a lot of different things going on. Dances orchestras, all kinds of stuff. Make sure you check it out. More information at nps.gov slash Boston. We will also have a link on our website news.wgbh.org slash UTR. That's it for this edition of Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. Join us next Sunday at 6 p.m. for the stories you may have missed. In the meantime, you can find our show and links to the stories and events we discussed today on the web at news.wgbh.org UTR. Listen to our show on the WGBH app and take UTR with you. Subscribe to our podcast on iTunes. Please write to us at undertheradar at wgbh.org. Our engineer is Doug Sugarts. Andrea Aswai is our producer. Under the Radar is a production of WGBH.